So we're going to go on now. If you wonder why there are so many battle songs this week, this is actually a battle that takes place in the Bible. It's a pretty big battle. It takes place between nine kings, and it's right here in Genesis. Um, so last week we, we saw Abraham got back with God after he had kind of a failure there and ran off to Egypt. He, he recovers from that. God brings him back out, and he's kind of been nailing it for a while. Some time has passed. We don't know how much time has passed. And then suddenly Genesis 14 starts off with a battle, a battle which, by the way, does not involve Abraham at all. So um, I'm going to do the best I can with these names and this throat. So at this time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch of Eleazar, and Chedorlaomer, the king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goam, went to war against Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, the king of Gomorrah. You know, those are famous cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, uh, Shinhab, the king of Admah, and Shimabar, the king of Zobiam. And the king of Bela, that is Zor. So all these latter kings joined forces in the Valley of Sodom, the Sea of Salt. For 12 years, they had been subject to Chaladormar, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. So you know, we, have, we have kind of a power struggle going on. Everybody's a king in those days, right? I mean, if, if, you know, we had a lot of like, almost like city-states kind of a thing, where if you had any kind of a... Th- remember, this isn't too long after the flood. And so they're kind of reestablishing. There aren't any real big empires yet. Uh, but they do have some large cities, and those become kingdoms, okay? So, um, so in the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, went out and defeated the Rephaites in Ashtoroth Karnam, and the Zuzites in Ham, and the Emiites in Shabbath Karam, and the Horites in the hill company of Seir as far as Il Param, which is near the desert. So basically, they took on all the ites. Um, they turned back then to invade El Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazaram Tamar. So this is a big history lesson, right, that took place. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zobiam, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, in case you forgot, uh, marched out and drew up battle lines in the Valley of Saddam against Chedorlaomer, the king of Elam, Tidal, the king of Goem, Aramoth, the king of Shinar, and Arioch, the king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Got it so far? So there was a rebellion, and Chedorlaomer squashed it. And as they're marching back, all the other kings decide to fight against him. So the kings he hadn't already squashed decide to rebel against him as well. Now the valley of Sidon was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, so they don't really tell us what happened there, but you can guess because Sodom and Gomorrah is running for their lives. When the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of their men fell into the pits, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went their way. So they gathered up five kings to fight against the, the, the forces that had just won a battle, and the five kings lost. And the Sodom and Gomorrah kings went running away in fear so fast that some of them fell into tar pits. This whole battle takes place. Why in the world is this detailed in the Bible? I mean, there's a lot of kings that maybe made a big difference in the day, but none of us care about them. We're in Genesis. We're talking about the story of Abraham. Why in the world is this in the Bible? Well, all this doesn't matter at all. Verses 1 through 11 wouldn't matter at all if it weren't for verse 12. Oh, they also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions because he had been living in Sodom. Now, we're going to come back to that next week uh, because we talked last week where, where they separated. Remember, Lot and Abraham separated. And, and Abraham did something extremely generous and told Lot, hey, you can live wherever you want. I'll take the other place and we'll separate because we're too close together and our, our, our flocks are conflicting. And so Lot took advantage of his uncle, who'd been nothing but nice to him, and says, well, I'll take the good land 
over there. But he went all the way over to Sodom and he pitched his tent facing Sodom because Lot is fascinated by sin. He said, I don't want to be in the sin. I just want to watch it. You know, I want to be able to open up my door and see it. I'm fascinated by it. So that's what happened last week. That's where it was. So he was there looking at Sodom, but now by verse 14, he was living in Sodom because that's what happens with sin. It draws you in and it doesn't stop drawing you in. Uh, so anyway, what happened was these kings who just won two huge victories made a really big mistake because they carried off somebody who mattered to Abraham. And it's almost like, you know, that was a mistake. That was probably a pretty big mistake because you took the one person in the Bible <laughs> that actually could, have, could get God to come against you because Abraham cares about Lot. Now, Abraham had... Uh, brought in, if you remember, Lot's his nephew, his brother died. So this is his brother's son. His brother had died and Abram had brought him into his household and raised him as his own. In fact, not only just his own, but as he established him as his own household, he's been nothing but generous and good to him. And you know, at this point, I think a lot of us go, well, you know what, Lot, you live by Sodom, you die by Sodom. You know, that's kind of like you, you get what you, what you sow and oh well, you know, he could have done that and then go take all the stuff back and just take all the promised land, but that's not who Abram is. In fact, uh, he's going to now go off to war because this is what the little video at the beginning was trying to show. A fugitive came and told Abram, the Hebrew, <laughs> as if we, we didn't know. Now, he was living by the oaks of Mamir, the Amorite brother of Eshel and the brother of Enar, and these were allies with Abram. I want to I show you that for a second because he had allies. Now, by this time, Abraham has been blessed by God tremendously. Uh, the years have probably passed. He's got huge flocks. He's got a huge household. He's been tremendously blessed. He's a rich and he's a very, very wealthy man. But the people who live around him, even though they start out as enemies, and even though they're not very righteous, they had become allies with him. Not friends. He wasn't living with them. He was still near them, but not with them. He wasn't mingling. But he had enough of a relationship with them that he could count on them for allies. Because he's actually going to call. He's going to say, look, my nephew was taken captive. We're going to go get him back. Now, this is amazing on a couple things. First of all, how in the world does he have these allies? He's got allies who will literally go to war with him. How is that possible? See, I believe, although we're not told specifically, that Abraham had used his wealth to bless those around him. Because that's what you can do with your wealth, right? When God blesses you with things, you can use that to bless those around you, or you can hoard it. It's up to you. And so I believe Abraham had actually been using it fairly and generously with the people around him. And this takes us to a verse that I've never understood in the New Testament. Because Jesus is talking about this very idea, using your wealth, which he calls unrighteous mammon. He's like, all the money you have unrighteous because it comes from this world. He says, what you should do is you should use your unrighteous wealth to make friends. He literally tells you to do that. And in Luke 16, he says this, look, the sons of this age are far more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. A lot of Christians separate entirely. Now, we're supposed to live in the world, not of the world. I'm not saying that you need to participate in sinful activity with them. That's not, that's not what I'm telling you. But we don't necessarily have to pull out and treat them like, oh, well, we can't, you're sinful. You're, you know, people feel that. They feel that judgment from the church. They want nothing to do with the church. That wasn't how Abraham lived. And that's not how Jesus is telling you to live. He says, other people are a lot more smart about relationships than my own people. That's what he's saying. He says, you should make friends for yourself by the means of unrighteous wealth. 
You know, it's unrighteous because all, all mammon has, you know, the world attached to it. So he says, you should make friends with that. That's a good thing to do with that wealth. And so then when it fails, when you, in other words, when you need help and you no longer have that wealth, they will receive you. But watch, in the eternal dwellings. It means they'll be with you even though, uh, you know, the, the, the situation shifted. They'll stay with you. Buy, he's not saying buy friends. He's saying bless the people around you and then you can turn to them in times of trouble. Jesus is saying that. I never understood that verse before. I was like, what's going on? But this is exactly what Abram had done. He had, done, he, had, he had done right by the neighbors around him. He didn't shun them, even though they were sinful. He, he continued to reach out to them to the point where he says, we're going to go to war. Now, it's one thing to have a, fence, have a neighbor help you build a fence. You know? that's, that's one thing. But they're going to war, folks. And he's saying, yep, we're with you. We are actually going to be with you. But Jesus goes on with this. He says, here's why you should do that. And this is something we need to always understand. He says, he who is faithful in very little will be faithful in much. And he who is unrighteous in little will be unrighteous in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who's going to trust the true riches to you? Well, where are the true riches of heaven? It's the people. He said, there's nothing better you can do with the money you have than to bless people and use as a means of reaching them. That's the best thing you can do with your money because money is nothing, he says, the people or it matter. So that's what Jesus tells us. And we see that Abram must have been following that, that thing because believe me, you don't just walk off to your neighbor and say, we're going to go to war. And they say, oh yeah, we're right. we will, we'll be right there. You know, uh, It's really something to have a neighbor say, yeah, I will fight and die by your side because that's the kind of relationship they had. And you don't develop that overnight when you need them. You develop that long before you need them. And so I believe Abraham was doing that. Okay, so what happens next is really, really Important. He divides his forces against them by night. He, they all rush at him. They find out where they are and they go after him. I mean, this is something like out of, you know, a Bruce Willis movie or something. It's like, it got him forces and going after him. We're going to get him back, you know? And he didn't have to do that. He could have tried to ransom him back. Wait till they get to settle in and go see if he's alive, buy him back as a slave or something and free him. They could have done a lot of things here. But Abram's blood's up. He's like, they, they did what? They took my nephew. Okay, this means war. And he goes after them. Now, what we don't see at all what we don't see at all is Abraham asking God if this is what he should do. I want to show you that because sometimes in the Bible it does show us that. David does that. Uh, he, he, gets, he gets news of a, of a raid that happened and he's kind of heart stricken and he goes before the Lord and says, should I pursue them? And God says, yep, I'm going to deliver them in your hands. He comes back and says, men, we're going after them. But he took that time to go off and he took that time to ask God. We don't see Abraham doing that at all. Now, time is of the essence. Maybe that's why. You know, he, like he hears about this and he's out after him that night. He tracks him down. So it may just be time is of the essence. But here's something that I think we have to understand is that Abraham was in a position with God by this point that he was finely tuned to the will of God. And so even though he was kind of acting instinctively, those instincts were correct. And by the way, we'll see that in David's life as well. When David marches onto the battlefield accidentally, and he hears Goliath for the first time, his instinct is someone needs to shut him up. Anybody going to do it? I'll do it then. He doesn't stop and pray about it. He says, that man needs to be shut up. And so he goes after him. So sometimes God's people will go, and they'll, you know, you'll see his leaders stay, go and pray, God, is this the right thing to do? And sometimes they just react. And even when they react, they're still in God's blessing. And the reason for that is they have spent time with God. He's a friend of God by this point. And so he kind of instinctively knows what God wants. Just like if you've got a really good friend in your life and, and something's going to happen, you could instinctively know. 
Like, like there's a friend of yours who does not want ever, ever, ever to have a surprise birthday party. You know that friend. You would never throw them a surprise birthday party because you know they would hate it. I've got one in my life, right? Would hate a surprise birthday party. Hate it. I would never do that. I have some people who think it'd be great, you know? And so you know that. You know that. You know because you know the friends. And, and he's a friend of God's. Now, the best illustration I give you is, this is maybe not a great one, but um, I play guitar. And I have a guitar that's been with me for a very long time. I bought it in 1981. It's still with me. And it hangs on a wall in my house, right? Uh, I play it probably far more than my wife wishes I would. It's, it's played a lot, right? Uh, now, if I had somebody walk into my house, like, surprise, surprise, you know, show up and say, hey, you know what we're in the mood for? Uh, we like to have a little mini concert of Harry Chapin music, which is like hashtag never said. But uh, let's say they did. Like, oh, okay, cool, come on in. And I brought a guitar with them. Hey, you know, if you want, you could play this. You know, they hand me this guitar in a case. I open it up, and I look down, and I see an Olsen guitar. Now, for those of you who don't play guitar, Olsen's a $20,000 guitar, right? And they said, yeah, you can play this, or, you know, grab your little guild off the wall. What do you want to do? You know what I'm going to do? Even though that's an amazing guitar, I'm going to go grab the one off the wall. Do you know why? Because I know it's in tune. It's, you can ask my wife, it's never out of tune. I play it all the time. I'm always tuning it. I'm always, but that one in the case, I have no idea what I'm looking at. Now, I know that the capability of that guitar in the case is far beyond the capability of mine. But there's a difference between capability and readiness. And so that's ready to play. I don't know what this is. And so sometimes we want to be like Abraham. We want to be able to instinctively know what God wants and just go do it. We want to be able to do that. But sometimes we're not ready because we haven't spent the time with God getting tuned to the point where we understand what his spirit wants. Abraham didn't need to stop, and I don't think he did. I think he just just reacted because he knew what God wanted. He could feel it in his heart. Let's go get him. Because he doesn't even debate about what to do. He goes and gets his allies, and I believe God went before him, and that's why they joined him, and they went off to battle. So they go, and they, they, they separate them, and, and they, they, can, they, they attack them from two sides. Now, I want to point out that they're going to be able to accomplish themselves what four kings failed to do. Well, actually, what five kings failed to do. So they, they found him, they defeat him at night, and they, they actually, you know the battle's going well and you have to chase him to kill him. That's a good battle, you know, when you have to actually chase him down uh, because they've been running so fast from you. And so he brings back all the goods. He brought back his relative lot, by the way, with all of his possessions and also women and all the people. It was a complete and total victory. He had succeeded where the kings had failed. Sodom and Gomorrah kings couldn't do that. They had trained warriors. Uh, Abraham had 387 servants. He went after him and got him. So this is an incredible thing. And then he comes back. He's coming back with this big victory. Uh, we don't see any losses on Abraham's side. It seems like it's a total victory. They gathered everything up. They're coming home. And uh, you know, that, those kings must think, man, I'm glad we don't cross Abraham very often. That guy's tough. You know? And he's just a shepherd, but God's with him. And so um, after he returns from the defeat of Chedlamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him. Where was he? What happened to this guy? <laughs> well, he's back in Sodom, you know, doing sodomy things, I guess, because he just ran back there and, and stayed. He, he didn't care about his people. Some king, he just went back to his home. Oh, that was a bad victory. Glad he didn't fall in the tar pit. And that's what he's doing. So now he hears that Abraham with his 380 people went out and pulled them all back. And now he shows up. All of a sudden, this king shows up. The world will always do that. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the Valley of Shavad, that is the king's valley. Now, the, now uh, 
ignore this, ignore the screen moving. And I'm like, well, and uh, the, this battle, see, this is why we, this is a special effect because we have a battle going on. That's why we're shaking the screen. Uh, so Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God the Most High. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, what? Are you kidding me? Who's Melchizedek? We're in Genesis 14, folks. He's never mentioned before. Now, Moses is the greatest civil leader of all time, but he, this man cannot tell the story. We should have been introduced to this guy somewhere. He's a high priest of God, and we never even heard of him before. By the way, he'll only show up here in all of Moses' narrative. He'll show up again in Psalm briefly, and he'll show up in the New Testament. You'll see him in the New Testament as well. Uh, they'll talk about him. <coughs> it's like, what, what happened, Moses? He kind of missed something here. I thought the only two righteous people on earth were Abram and his nephew Lot. I thought that was it. Now all of a sudden we find out there is a high king of God, a high priest, the king of Salem, wherever that is, never been mentioned, and he comes out to meet him. So I wanted to show you that the king of Sodom is coming to meet him, and the Mel- Melchizedek, the king of Salem, a high priest of God, is coming to meet him. Now I don't often do this, you know, but for those of you who like digging deep in the Bible, <laughs> I did this for you. I, I, I kind of went into this a little bit because the question I was just haunted by, who's Melchizedek? For crying out loud, how do we never hear about this guy before? He must have been somebody important. Nobody knows is the answer to that. There are three leading prevailing theories on who Melchizedek is, and I'll tell you which one I, I lean towards. Uh, one of them is he's just a guy who found out who God was and lived righteously. You know, uh, we see another guy kind of like that, Balaam, uh, although Balaam ends up being unrighteous in the end. And they're like, well, he's just a good version of Balaam. That's one, that's one way. Some people put out the theory that, that it's Jesus Christ himself on earth. I don't believe so because he says he's king of Salem, which would seem to indicate that he's actually king of something. Now, Salem, Salem and Salem are very close together, and, and that's actually the word for peace. So king of peace, prince of peace. You can see why they make that connection. But it seems like he's somebody they know because when the king of Sodom shows up, he, he lets Melchizedek speak first. So it's not only they know who he is, they're actually deferential to him. So this dude must have been in the Bible for some time, and, and he must have been there. Now, we see uh, David later writing in Psalms, talks about him. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. He's talking about Jesus. This is a prophecy about the Messiah. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So he's actually saying there's an order of priesthood that the Messiah is going to come from which is kind of interesting because it gets picked up again in Hebrews. In Hebrews 6, the writer of Hebrews says this, This is the hope we have as the anchor of our soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus is entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So it's the same thing. So they're saying that there's this thing about Melchizedek who's not just a person, but there's an order of priesthood that follows him. And then he goes on, he tells more about that in, in, in Hebrews 7. This Melchizedek is king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who meets Abraham as he's returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And he goes on, he comes down and says, the king of righteousness, and then also the translation, uh, Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and also the king of Salem, which is king of peace. Righteousness and peace. He's symbolic of righteousness and peace is what he's saying. But watch this, he doesn't have a father, he doesn't have a mother. Well, clearly he did. But we have no idea, no genealogy is what he's saying. We don't know where he came from. And we don't see him again, which means he's a priest forever. And what, what Paul and David are both saying is there's, there's two kinds of priests that we see described in the Bible. One is the priesthood of Aaron. When, when, the, when, when God brings out the Israelites, he says to Aaron, you will be my priests, your, your children will be my priests. 
And they all were hereditary. They descended from Aaron. All the priests, up until the New Testament, all the priests were all descendants of Aaron. And um, they're men. They're ordinary men. They have a father, they have a mother we know about, and they die in, within the context of the Bible. And they're only priests for Israel. But what Paul is saying, or, or what the writers of Hebrew, we don't know it was Paul, what the writer of, of, of Hebrews is saying, and what David's saying is there's another order of priest. This one's personal. This isn't based on hereditary. He's just a priest. He's established. He's eternal, and he's forever, and he's worldwide. So this is who Jesus is. Jesus comes like Melchizedek. He has no father and mother that we know of. I mean, obviously, we, you know, his genealogy predates you know, Mary and... and, and, and uh, Thank you. Wow. I'm going to blame that on uh, Advil Colton Sinus. Uh, and he's eternal. He goes on forever. And, and it's for everybody. It's not just for Israel. It's for that. So um, here's what somebody proposes, and I like this, this idea. So if this guy shows up and no one, basically nobody knows who his parents are, that means he was living before the people of the area were there. He was already there. He was an old guy. And he lives longer than they are all there. He will outlive, you know, all of them. So that's what makes him seem eternal because he's just an old guy. He's a really, really old guy. And uh, what somebody suggests is it actually is Shem. Shem is uh, one of the three sons of Noah. Now the reason they say that is because right after this, right after the Tower of Babel, God cuts down the lifespan of men. He says, you won't live as long as you used to. He actually says 120 years, which people think is symbolic. But Moses lives 120 years, for example. But Shem was before that. He lives for 600 years. So in other words, he was before Abraham and lived long after. So they're saying this is why he was there. And this is why he knew who God was. He was the son of Noah. And that's why he had all this you know, uh, background where he had, he had served God for a very, very long time. Just think about that for a second. How would you like to meet somebody who's 500 years old, 500 years old and had served God their entire life? You know what they would know about God? You know, if they really just devote themselves to righteousness? That'd be amazing. And I believe you know, that kind of fits who Melchizedek is. We don't know. Okay, that's a side. For those of you who don't like history, who cares? But for those of you who like to get into that kind of stuff, you can do a lot of research on who Melchizedek is, a lot of theories. I kind of believe it's Shem. That's where I'm, that's where I'm going with it. Anyway, uh, so we're going we're gonna to move back. And back to Melchizedek. So I want to show you. So he's coming back from battle, and he's met by Melchizedek, and he's met by the king of Sodom. I want to show you the difference between God and the world. And Melchizedek blessed him. Melchizedek came to bless him. God sends people to bless you. Even after you've done something for him, he wants to bless you. Even after he's done something for you, he wants to bless you. This is who God is. So he sent his priest to him to bless him. He said, blessed be Abram of God most high. You are God's servant. Possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high because he has delivered your enemies into your hand. So Abraham took off, you know, in a little bit of an rage. But God was with him. And he couldn't have won that battle without God. But now he has. He's won an impossible battle, really. And he's rich. He's got all this stuff. And he comes back. And now God's going to actually say, I was with you. Which is also saying, I wanted you to do that. Because right? God's not going to with you to sin. God, you were doing what God wanted. You're blessed. And so now Abraham goes, oh, cool. So my question is now, what would you do? What would you do now? What would your next move be? Think about that. You went off and won an impossible battle. God was with you, and you just had his high priest said, yep, God was with you, and you are blessed. What would you do to get all preachery on you? Answer me. What 
would you do? I don't know. What would you do? I can't scream like that, so I have some else to. What would you do? Seriously, what would you do? What would you do next? What would Abraham's move be? Well, here's what Abraham does. And he gave Melchizedek a tenth of all. A tenth. Abraham tithes from all of his increase from the battle because he recognizes that he could not have done this without God. So Melchizedek says, I'm blessing you, which tells you God was with you. And he says, I know he was. And because of that, I'm giving a tenth back to his priest. So um, this is a little bit weird, right? And I'll tell you why this is weird. Because this is before the law. Moses is not even alive yet. There is no Leviticus law. You know, you hear about tithing, and sometimes, I, I, a lot of times, people say, well, we don't have to tithe anymore. That's the law. We're not under the law anymore, so we don't have to tithe. That was old law. That was Old Testament. That's law. We're under grace. It doesn't apply to us, except this predates the law. This is before there was a law. Law won't come by for a couple more chapters in the Bible. There is no law, and yet it was already established. Just so you know, by the way, tithing predates the law. Tithing is reaffirmed during the law, and tithing is reaffirmed by Jesus Christ in the New Testament. You want to tithe, you go ahead, don't tithe. But don't tell me it's because you don't believe you're under the law. First of all, that's not true also, just so you know. The Old Testament law takes three parts. There's a moral law, there's a civic law, and there's a redemption law, law of redemption. Uh, the redemption law, Jesus Christ fulfilled once and for all. We're not under that law anymore. We are also not under the civil law. The civil law was the law that Moses wrote to tell the Israelites how they relate to each other. That doesn't apply to us. You know, maybe it's not a bad starting point for our laws, for our government, but we're not under that law. We are still under the moral law, though. You think the Ten Commandments no longer apply? You know, it's, it's absolutely, we're still under the moral law. And this tithing thing is a heart thing. We know that because Jesus Christ himself tells us. Where your heart is, your treasure follows. Jesus says that. So this is a heart thing. This is, even if it were just law that was in the Old Testament, you, you're still bound by it. This is still God's command to you. Because Jesus says, I want your heart. This shows me I have your heart. Abraham's heart was turned to God. He didn't have to be told to do this. He did it. Tithing predates the law. But here's the amazing thing. So the Melchizedek didn't ask for anything. But he's a representative of God. So, so Abraham's going to give him 10%. Watch what the king of Sodom does next. Because this is pretty amazing to me. This is a guy who hid in his palace while Abraham went and fought the fight. And then he comes up and says, okay, you know what? Uh, give the people to me. You can take the goods for yourself. You know, why? You don't none of this belongs to you. The, the, to the victor goes the spoils. King of Sodom's not the victor. I make you a deal. Give me all the people. You can keep the stuff. Why would Abraham do that? The people's the treasure, right? I'm not going to, why would I do that? And, and so Abram says this to the king of Sodom. He said, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, I will not take a thread or a thread the sandal strap or anything that is yours for fear you would then say I have made Abram rich so you don't have to worry about it king I'm taking nothing I don't want anything of yours and here's why I want everybody to know who makes me rich it's God the most high I didn't go after there to get rich I went after to get Lot back and I'm taking him I'm not going to do anything here's the amazing thing to me though because this shows this just a maturity to Abraham where we didn't see when he went running off to Egypt he not only believes in Jehovah Jireh, he's taking another step because it's one thing to trust for God to provide for your daily bread. Can you trust him to provide for your increase? 
Because he's saying, I don't even need to get rich because if God wants to make me rich, he'll make me rich. He's not only going to provide me manna, he's going to provide me everything. And I want him to do that because then I know God provided it. Then I don't have to worry about where it came from. And you can't come later and take any credit for what God did. I want to make sure God gets all the glory. That's what he's saying. This is an amazing change in Abraham from chapter 12. Amazing change. In, in Psalm, the psalmist says this, Promotions come neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. I'll wait for God to exalt me. I don't need the king of Sodom to exalt me. I really don't need that at all. See, Abraham had learned in Egypt just how empty earth's promotions really are. He had everything except Sarah, and he was miserable. He didn't have God because he couldn't worship God. He said, I'm never doing that again. I have learned my lesson. And by the way, I wish I could tell you he had learned his lesson. <laughs> He's going to fall again. We all do. That's what I love about the Bible. It's just real. He said, I'm going to take nothing. Here's the only thing I want. Uh, I'll take whatever the young men have eaten because <laughs> we've already eaten some food. We're not giving that back to you. You don't want it. Uh, and the share of the men who went with me, uh, I'm going to get them their share. My allies, I'm taking care of them. I want you to notice what this does to the allies. Well, he's not taking anything for himself, but he's still paying us. See, that's who Abraham is now. He's generous to all those. They can have their stuff. I'm absolutely not taking anything from you, though. In James, he says something interesting. He says, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, and there is no variation in shifting a shadow. What he's saying is, good things can come from anything, but good and perfect things, those come from God. And here's how you know they're perfect. They don't change. There's no good news, bad news with God's gifts. The world gives everything with good news and bad news. I'm going to give you this, but it's going to cost you this. The king of Sodom wasn't going to take that. He was going to come back later. Hey, remember that time that I gave you all that stuff? I need something from you now. You know, like the godfather. One day I'll come to you with a favor. You know, he knows that, right? He's not going to fall for that. Um, but here's the thing. We cannot live in the promise until we learn to trust the promise. That's the hard part. We want the promise and we want to live it, but at some point you're going to have to trust it. God told Abraham, I will make you a great nation. Kings will come from you. Are you going to believe that promise or not? Because if you believe that promise, you don't need the king of Sodom to give you anything. Especially knowing how the king of Sodom got the things he got. So um, one other thing that I want to point out, and we're going to close with a couple scriptures here from Psalm, but I want to point out there's, there's a big difference here between Lot, who's called righteous, by the way, in the New Testament. He is righteous. He knows who God is. He, he sacrifices to the Lord. He, he's a righteous man. Uh, he just has this thing where he likes sin. <laughs> I think that's something we could all identify with a little bit, but he's really fascinated by it, and it pulls him in. And he later on says, I don't know what happened. You know, I'm pretty sure what happened. <laughs> but you, know, you get pulled into it. You, know, you just get pulled into it. And that's what happens to him because he never is invested in God. He believes in a God, but he doesn't believe that God really matters in his life. He, he knows God, but he's not a friend of God. And there's a difference between a friend of God and someone just who knows who God is. Now, I'm not talking about salvation here, because I don't know who's getting into heaven and who's not. Please don't ever ask me, because I don't know. I have no idea, and I've learned not to care. All I know is Jesus tells me there's going to be people there that I'm astonished, and there's going to be people missing that I'm astonished. That's all I know. So I don't know. I never, never get into that. So I'm not talking about salvation here. But there's a huge difference between a friend of God and someone who just believes in God. Abraham's a friend of God. 
Lot believes in God. And we see it play out in their lives in this way. When Abram really screwed up and got himself in trouble, God went after him personally. When Lot screws up, he sends Abram. But he has to. He's not friends with Lot. See, if, if, you don't, if you're just believing in God and you're not a friend with God and you, you have issues, going, he's got to send somebody because you're not a friend, you're not hearing him. So the difference is Abram could hear him. So when, when, when God sees him in trouble, he steps in personally because he's personal friends with Abram. <coughs> this is the second time now Lot has saved, been saved by Abram. There's a third time coming. This is the second. The first time is when, when, it, when Lot's father died. He could have been cast out at that point. Good luck. But Abram saved him. He stepped in and took him in as his own. This is the second time. He was picked up from Sodom because of his sin. Abraham didn't go after him. Didn't have to. But he did. So God sent Abraham to save him. There's a third time coming. And Lot just never does learn. The reason why Abraham has this relationship is because he's cultivated this relationship. We cannot live in the promise alone. So we learn to trust the promise. And we don't want anything else to come in between us and the promise of God. So um, here's what Abraham has learned. Psalm 64. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. My soul longed, even yearns for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. For one day in your courts is better than a thousand outside of them. I'd rather have one day in your court than a thousand outside of them. And I would rather stand on the doorway of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. This is, this is what Abram knew. He said, I don't need any part of Sodom. I don't want anything you've touched in my house. Ooh, some of the things they do with their things. We'd have to wash them. No, you just keep them all. Keep all your things. I don't want them. I don't want your people either because if they're going to follow that king, there's nobody I want in my house. I'm going to be blessed by God because he has given me a promise and I'm going to hold to that promise. I'm not going to anybody else to help me. I don't need your help. I'm going to recognize his help when I get it. I'm going to bless him and thank him for it, but I'm going to continue to do that. See, unless we ever get to the point where we fully understand the gift that is the presence of God, we will never fully understand how to live in his promise. Would you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are the great God who loves us.